We are speaking with Robert Darden of Baylor University in Waco, Texas, Bob Maravich in Chicago, and we should say thank you to the studios who are helping us do this today. Thank you to KWBU-FM at Baylor University in Waco, Texas, and thanks to WFMT in Chicago. I was joking earlier that WFMT was, well, it wasn't a joke, actually. It was a reminiscence. I used to listen to WFMT on Cable FM when I was in graduate school and uh, thought maybe one day I could be on WFMT. Uh, and this is probably as close as I'll ever get. <laughs> so the next uh, next track, this is this is especially for Robert Darden, who's been sitting here dissing Motown all morning long. And I, I just, you know, you, you try to be tolerant and patient, and then after a while, you just you just snap. So I, I'm I'm ready for this one. We're moving now from Milwaukee to Indianapolis. This is Robert Turner and the Silver Hearts. And the reason I think of this in terms of Motown is that whoever is playing bass on this track has either been listening to James Jamerson or James Jamerson was listening to him. Either way, this is some of the most virtuosic stuff that I've heard uh, all morning long. And I want to play this and uh, give everybody a chance to kind of have the guilty pleasure of the Motown Funk Brothers experience. (laughs) But before we get to that, Bob Maravich, could you tell us a little bit about Robert Turner and the Silver Heart Gospel Singers? Sure. Um, Very famous in Indianapolis. Um, Robert Turner just died a couple of years ago, but um, uh, in Indianapolis, he would be considered one of the top uh, gospel artists of his day. Um, He he was specially known for organizing an annual Christmas program where any gospel artist in the city could perform. You just had to sign up in advance, and then you can get up and get your 10 minutes, your A and B song. Um, and uh, there's a gentleman in Indianapolis that's continuing Robert Turner's uh, legacy today. Just, he just started in this past year to re- reinvigorate that Christmas program for Chicago, for Indianapolis gospel artists. But yeah, Robert Turner, when he passed away, the uh, the gospel community, particularly those associated with the Gospel Music Workshop of America, were very sad on his passing. You know, Indianapolis has been kind of underrated as a gospel uh, hotbed, but from Al Hobbs to whoever, there has been a long tradition. Uh, there's even been a couple of major record labels based there. I believe Ty Scott, didn't they start there? Absolutely. And good artists coming out of Indianapolis and keeping this tradition. Whether or not there's an Indianapolis sound, I don't know. I just do know that there's a lot of good music has come this way, and I'm, I'm a big fan of some of Robert Turner's work. And, and uh, before him, uh, Beatrice Brown, who was the Brown's inspirational singers, but also a big songwriter and publisher, uh, came from Indianapolis, and one of her uh, singers was a guy by the name of Kenneth Woods Jr., who ended up working with Mahalia and with Sally Martin, and is still very active. In fact, I, I want to be uh, Kenneth Woods Jr. when I grow up. I mean, I, I don't know how old the man is. I won't never want to ask him, but he has got to be the most athletic individual I've ever seen. <laughs> he is great. He still conducts choirs, and uh, just a magnificent, ebullient personality, if ever there was one. Uh, and he came from Indianapolis. You talk about a life's work. Is it true that Robert Turner sang his first solo at four years of age, standing on a chair in the front of his church? Wouldn't be surprised. A lot of them started that way. Uh, James Cleveland did that. They stood him up. Uh, Dorsey stood him up on top of the piano or something and had him sing his first solo at that age. Uh, there are a lot of young uh, singers, and uh, you'll even see in the gospel, uh, in the various older recordings, seven- and eight-year-old Wonder Boy Preachers, where they would get up and preach a sermon at that age. Unreal. 
There's a the release of the Selma Freedom March in the Selma music from one of the nights there. A number of the tracks have lead voices by six, seven, eight-year-old girls, and the uh, boy soprano business hardly do James Cleveland justice. He had an amazing falsetto little boy soprano in those days when you compare it to that gruff and growly almost rasp that he had in his later days it kind of messes with my head that's actually a very good imitation of james cleveland uh, i think we're going to have the studio engineer boost the bass for me next time <laughs> and speaking of bass we're going to hear some virtuoso bass here and we'll see if we can get together here in waco on this motown issue <laughs> i'll try but uh, anyway this is uh, robert turner and the silver hearts from Indianapolis, there is a God.
There is a God, Robert Turner and the Silver Hearts from Indianapolis. A lot of interesting instrumentation in that track. We've got vibes going on. There are, I guess, congos or bongos. And the bass player is just wailing all the way through. One of the great things about gospel music and why I collected and I collect some, a lot of the early soul and R&B is that there isn't that polished. There isn't, this is what works. We're not going to do a formula. If we happen to have a good vibe player who is wandering through that day, let's get him and use him. The song would have been different, maybe better or worse without him. There's a immediacy. Most of them had tiny, tiny budgets. A lot of the stuff is, not this one perhaps, but a lot of them had a lot of one track, one take. Here's the microphone. You sing it. You've got time for two songs and then the meter stops and get out. And that may meant that not all of it's classic, but that all of it has a level of sincerity and enthusiasm. And one of the great things about it is the the great gospel artists are going to give their heart and soul if there's 10 people in a storefront church or if there's 2,000 in War Memorial Auditorium in Memphis. It just doesn't matter because in the end, if you're singing for religious purposes, one soul saved, as they say, then that was a good day's work. Now, you do have to have enough money to get to the next venue, and the love offering ought to be at least that much, but so many of them barely made it from date to date for 20 years. And listening to that recording and hearing those bongos in the background uh, reminds me that, you know, it wasn't long before that uh, when uh, Charles Watkins had made a recording, I think it was called Don't Let This Harvest Pass in the early 50s, and he had bongos on the recording, and it it, it shocked the, the church community. They were just absolutely horrified that anyone would bring bongos onto a gospel recording, to the extent that he never did that again for a long time. I mean, it was very, very serious. And then later, you know, then it was almost like de rigueur to have bongos on recordings for a long time in terms of gospel. But yeah, at one point that was just shocking to so have what would bongos. So what would have been so shocking about bongos on a gospel record? Well, a lot of it is you have a lot of people that don't believe outside of the Pentecostal Kojic tradition that you should have instruments, A, in your church, much less on your sacred music. And it's very grudging that they will allow some of them organ and piano. And then the step guitar, that blues instrument of Satan's work, that's a big step for some people. And by the time it gets to adding guitars, bass, and drums, then some of the traditionalists drop out. They just will not listen. It is no longer the music they grew up to, which was Jubilee or their quartet standing. But even the uh, groups that would start off a cappella, even some of them would end up adding, uh, you know, the foot feet. Uh, the studio engineer would put a mic down by their feet so he could at least cap their foot tapping to give some kind of beat. Is that a sellout or is that just part of their own emotional performance? Some people took it as a sellout and never would buy it again. And others quit when they add a guitar. And others quit when they start adding a synthesizer. Just part of the whole yeah. popular music phenomenon. Bob? Yeah, Robert, I, I agree. And I think it, it, did, it did have a lot to do with church affiliation. Uh, Charles Watkins, I believe, was a member of the Pentecostal Assemblies of the World. So he he was used to having all kinds of music, uh, all kinds of instrumentations in his church. But the Baptist Church, maybe the AME Church, Methodists, uh, not so much uh, having bongos. Uh, and uh, and he you know he sort of bowed to that pressure for a while, and then he he brought it back later. But yeah, it, it very much had to do with where what you grew up with, because Amy had trombones on on some recordings uh, of the of some of the Pentecostal uh, churches, like uh, Reverend Kelsey's church in mm-hmm. Washington D.C. had was that 
Clifton, somebody who just played the, his great trombone on almost all the tracks. Or the Sacred Steel tradition. It's ah, just a yes. different, one of the things great is there are regional differences and, and denominational differences, which we don't have in other kinds of music. Well, now I'm wondering whether this next track by the Singinaires would have had the same kind of uh, horrified reactions by some of the purists. This is on the Gladhamp label, which is a puzzle to me. I don't know. I know Lionel Hampton was called Gladhamp for a while, but I don't think he had anything to do with this. Um, but this particular track sounds almost as if it could have come out of Atlantic Studios in New York. It's, very, it's almost got a coaster's feel to it. So let's have a listen, and then we'll talk about whether this one would have horrified uh, the folks who wanted to hear their uh, gospel music in a very straight fashion. The singing air, singing airs, I guess they would have said singing airs, uh, and this is Traveling Up. Singing airs and traveling up. Okay, Bob and Robert, we've got a boogie-woogie sax break in there with a little bit of bluesy stuff going on. Big old Hammond organ with a Leslie going around. We've got uh, something that sounds like it could be uh, Charlie Brown there with the coasters. So so tell me, when, when you hear that, what's the audience for that strand of black gospel music? Oh, me. I love that stuff. I love that stuff. I'm not such a purist that... I don't think that song wasn't improved by all of those additions. I do love the straight uh, acapella harmonies, but I think that song, the, the beat was necessary to sell that song. And I think any song that's got King Curtis or King Curtis sound-alike on sax has become, by definition, a better song. Yeah, you know, there, 
a lot of the quartet music from the early 60s had this incredible connection with that sort of R&B and doo-wop sound. There's just a lot of it to make it seem not so much a coincidence as much as a as a theme or a trend. Um, and, and that was one where exactly if you change the words to it, could have just been a, a pop hit on the, on the radio. If it was traveling up to see my girl, it would have been a doo-wop uh, just like any other doo-wop. Um, that actually was associated with uh, Lionel Hampton. Uh, it's, uh, d- nobody knows of any other gospel recordings on the Glad Hamp label that he had done except for that one. And, and how he got in, associated with that group, I don't know. But um, it, it does kind of have that East Coast beat to it, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, where, where it just all comes together like a good doo-wop. Yeah, I would think Jerry Wexler must have been uh, mm-hmm. enjoying that uh, when he heard it. So there is a relationship there, some kind of tie to Lionel Hampton? It is. It's, uh, I, I was at an Association of Recorded Sound Collections conference a few years ago when they were talking about the Glad Hamp label, and uh, it was, in fact, one of the recordings on the label. It just nobody really knew about it. it maybe it was the only gospel one that they did, but it is definitely part of that label's uh, uh, collection. So would folks have been horrified by the hybridity of a song like that, of an arrangement like that? Uh, we're, we're all enjoying it today, but would it have caused a would it have been a, a dividing line in the black gospel music audience? Well, there's two audiences. Again, by this point, very few of the quartets are still doing churches and starting to do auditoriums, and you're self-selecting to go hear that group. They would probably not been invited to do First Church of Deliverance in Chicago. But now they have a, ba- a organ and a drummer. So, Bob? Right, and... Uh, my sense is that uh, quartets are still to this day trying to find ways to make sure that they fit in with the modern sound so that they don't sound like yesterday's music and lose their audience or somehow uh, don't maximize their audience impact. So my guess is what was happening, and quartets have always been a little bit, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Robert, they've always seemed a, a little bit less, uh, uh, say for lack of a better word, uh, connected to that, that you have to be pure. I mean, a lot of right. quartets had a kind of a lifestyle that wasn't always 100% on, on the straight and narrow. Yeah, they you. did hang out with other uh, musicians, and they picked up on other things. And so, you know, I'm sure the group, the Singing Airs, uh, don't know specifically, but they might have gone to see some of the big shows in the Apollo and played with some of those guys and just naturally picked up on that sound as being, hey, this is going to make us hip, and, you know, we don't care. Uh, you know, we still have an audience. We want to make sure that uh, we sound as relevant uh, today as any of the pop groups. Yeah, and that uh, divide between the the mass choirs and the soloists on one side and the quartets begins real early as the quartets and the pilgrim travelers start wearing the tight gabardine suits and start doing the more overtly sexual moves of a Kylo Turner that Sam Cooke will start watching later on. And they're the first to start incorporating instrumentation, not the choirs or the soloists. Many of the soloists will continue with just piano or organ until the very end. It's not it's quartets that blaze the trail, for better or worse, depending on your preferences on that. I'm drawn to them because I did grow up listening to Wilson Pickett. That kind of sound hits me more. And then the other problem is so many of the great mass choirs do not record because it's so difficult. The studios weren't big enough. The recording equipment was not uh, sophisticated enough until we get to the Abyssinian Baptist Choir and the, and the great Alex Bradford. Do we even get many live recordings of, of choirs at all? Right, and... and uh I think uh, talk about relevance. I think that for the quartet community, 
have, have, has always been a little bit more forgiving of, of those kinds of uh, ads of instrumentation. For example, with uh, the Soul Stirrers, um, they added instrumentation uh, much to the chagrin of uh, Art Roop, uh, but it worked. And I think it just, they wanted to make sure that they sounded current. And if that meant, you know, developing a sound that included drums and piano and, and bass and all that, so be it. And then everyone else starts to add it because they realize, yeah, if the Solsters did it and the Dixie Hummingbirds did it and Blind Boys did it, we sure better do it too. And suddenly then everyone's doing it. They're all sounding uh, more like a contemporary you know, pop music and uh, and sometimes indistinguishable from it, but that, that was a way to keep keep alive on the gospel highway. So as I hear the two of you talk, Robert Darden and Bob Maravich, and I listen to these songs which may exist maybe in four or five copies, I mean, who knows, uh, and songs that would very easily be overlooked. It strikes me that without preserving this heritage, not only have we lost a key part of American history, but to some extent we can't even really speak intelligently about black gospel music unless we have this rich variety of these one-offs, these regional bands, these folks who are listening to each other and making these records in church basements. We, we can't even really begin to talk about this music as an art form unless we find these obscure recordings and preserve them. And I think Bob has has taken the lead by not just specializing in Chicago, but going very early on to get the 45s and to make sure this uh, irreplaceable legacy is available for when the rest of the music community, academic community, catches up with him and realizes, I can't get from A to Z without this. I have to have these stops along the way. And without the 45s that he has say, and the LPs and 78s that he saved, we've got enormous gaps in our music and cultural heritage. And that that's foolishness to think we that that's not important. Just because there is a, and I'll be real frank here, there is an academic uh, reticence, I see it everywhere I go, to deal with matters of faith. There's just not going to be a lot of scholarly writing that has about religious materials. And then when you get into an area, since the great mass of scholars in this country, unfortunately, are still white, and you're working to get tenure in academia, and to write about a music of another culture, African-American, and it's religious, we have, there's no major journal, for instance, that covers gospel music. There's on jazz and blues and everything else, but no academic journal that currently covers gospel music. Now, how are we going to make sense of what we are today as music, since most American music, most American fads, most American dances and slang come from the African-American community? How can we not, how can we ignore this? I'm I'm so glad you said that, Robert, because I think that is something that is very much needed. Uh, The the idea of a a gospel music journal, and there's a lot of scholars working out there. Uh, There's not a whole lot of avenues for them to publish, um, as there is, say, in jazz and blues. And the gospel music magazines uh, that are out there tend to focus on current music because that's that's who their audience is and what's going on there and what's going on in their life, uh, whether it's in, in terms of their church life and their, their work life and balancing work and church and family matters. So they're really not talking about the music uh, in an academic way. There are if anything, it's the magazines uh, in the UK and France and other places where there's really an effort to try to, to talk about it. But it's important because I, I do, I believe it's, it's sort of a, one of the last frontiers of American music to really study and understand. And um, the, re- the recordings, as you said, there weren't that many to begin with in most instances. And once they're gone, they're gone. Many of the artists themselves don't have recordings. And many of the artists of this era are are passing away. I've I've been blessed and fortunate 
to be among, uh, as a member of the Gospel Announcers Guild here in Chicago, to have gotten to know some of these individuals. Some have passed, some are still around. I still remember, but even some of them don't have the recordings that they made back in the day. And, uh, and, and yet, you know, so there's, there's that bit of history that's, that's entirely missing if they don't have it. Uh, I, I think, yeah, if there's a way there can be this general call to say we need a good journal to chronicle this music from people who really understand it, I think it would be a fantastic contribution to scholarship. And Bob Maravich, you have stepped into that breach a little bit yourself, and I know Robert Darden has begun this uh, recently as well, by, by having a blog. Can you talk a little bit about why you decided to start keeping this blog and how that's played into your own professional and personal uh, interest in this music? Sure. In fact, uh, actually, I started the blog out of out of a sense of guilt. <laughs> I was uh, as a Gospel Announcers Guild member uh, in Chicago. I was being serviced with projects that I couldn't play on my own radio show because my radio show on Saturday mornings plays the kind of music we're playing here. And so I said, "Gee, I just don't feel right taking this music. What can I do?" Well, my wife, who's uh, an expert blogger, she has several blogs of her own. Said, "You ought to start one." I said, "Well, how do I even start?" She said, just start. So I, I, it's free. So I started it, and it's been now five years, and it has almost become my identity in the gospel music community. It's introduced me to so many artists and so many different uh, styles of gospel music that I can't imagine life now without it. Um, but it really started because I, I felt I had an obligation to the artists who were servicing me with their projects, current artists, to help them, uh, either to say that these are great pieces or to say to them off, off, you know, off-site, listen, I don't think this project is ready for commercial use because of this, that, and the other thing. Um, so it was really an idea to help the independent artist get their name out there, uh, as well as you know, let individuals know about the current artists as well. And that's where the blog has taken me, as well as trying to update people on things that are happening in the traditional community, particularly if artists have passed away. Or, for example, we're going to hear uh, in a day or two that the Golden Gate Quartet is coming back for the second time since 1958 to sing in Virginia. The first time they'll be back in, in the U.S. since, I think, the early 90s. That's important, and that needs to be you know, gotten out there on the blog, and, and that's kind of the basis of it. And it is, uh, Bob won't say this, but I will, it, it's the premier blog on this topic. It's, it's the site you go to, and he's the person you go to for this music, and I have... Uh, gone to it for many years, and it's enriched my own research and my own listening pleasure on a regular basis. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Robert, you're here at Baylor University where the Black Gospel Music Restoration Project is being undertaken. Can you talk a little bit about what folks can do to help out with that project in terms of, of course, you know, monetary donations, but also in terms of information or any kinds of connections or even being able to loan us some materials to, sure. to do that digitization? We got an extraordinary grant from a, a gentleman named Mr. Charles Royce in New York to set the project up about five years ago. And from the beginning, what we wanted to do was, from an academic standpoint, what Bob is doing on a, as a private individual, get a copy, like a harvest, a copy of every black gospel song released during that era, say 1945 to 1970. And what we will do is, if you'd like to loan it to us, as Bob is so graciously doing, We'll pay for the shipping there and back and the insurance. We'll make a copy, a digital copy, if he would like, and send back the originals. If you'd like to donate to us, this is a, a, a registered charitable organization. But 
We'd be glad to have it and give you credit and give you a copy. And again, we'll pay all the shipping. We would love photos, sheet music, any kind of ephemera related to this. This is only for educational purposes with the one goal to save America's greatest musical art form. We can take it in any form, and in some cases, we'll even go get it if it's enough material. But there are a number of collectors who said, sure, you make copies of everything we have, but these 78s will break if you glare at them. You're going to have to set up a portable studio in my garage, and we're willing to do that. What we want to do is no other reason than to save this music for posterity. We have it uh, four different redundancies on it so that if even Baylor goes up, we have off-campus sites that will save it and make sure that it endures at the very highest archival quality. And you can go to Baylor University, Baylor uh, Library, and Baylor Library Gospel. You can Google it, and it'll show up right away and take it to a link explaining what we do and how you can get the music to us and what we'll do to make sure that happens. And when we publish these interviews up on various websites, on iTunes U, various other locations, we'll have the URL that you can go straight mm-hmm. to to uh, contribute information, to uh, uh, help out in any way that you, you feel you can. The URL is baylor.edu forward slash LIB for library and then another forward slash for uh, gospel. And you'll find it there. And I think it's worth emphasizing that if you have information or photographs or you know a group or you were there for a performance, anything that you can do to enrich the context for uh, our study of this music and our preservation of it, uh, that would be greatly appreciated. One of the nice things is that other universities have come to us and say, we were given a, a DJ died and gave us his huge collection of black gospel. It's still sitting in the boxes. Will you catalog for us all this material? Because we are, everything we've done is being cataloged. Will you digitize it? Will you make copies of the photos? We have the best scanning equipment available. We'll do whatever. And we want to make sure that somewhere down the road that there are Kids don't say, what the heck were you thinking to let this stuff slip away? Bob Maravich, when did you become aware of the Black Gospel Music Restoration Project here at Baylor? Uh, Really, I want to say from the beginning, uh, I remember reading about uh, the the project starting and got in a conversation. I believe I had uh, spoken to Robert about his book because when his book came out, everyone in Chicago was was eager to get a copy. And there's one gentleman who who was really into gospel music, was buying copies for everyone he knew to read it. And... uh, and then uh, I want to say read about or heard about the, the pro- program and thought that's really something that's you know worth someone's time and effort really to make this happen. And that's when I uh, reached out and said I'd be willing to help because I just felt you know in the same way that I always felt that the collection shouldn't sit in, in the closet and not be listened to and enjoyed, it shouldn't sit in there and not be somehow shared with others. And I wanted to make sure that at least I could share what I was able to find with with what Baylor was trying to do. One of the fun things is very early on, uh, Terry Gross and Fresh Air did a a wonderful piece on the project. And a reason it has continued to be replayed and have a life of its own is the music, virtually all of what we played during that show came from Bob's collection because he was the first major collector to step forward and say, how can I help make this happen? So some of what was heard that day and why it was successful was his uh, very savvy choice of songs that made people want to talk about it. Well, and I think what's great about what Baylor's doing is it, it's, it's similar to what I think, like what the American Film Institute with the at, Saving At-Risk Films. Uh, here's an opportunity to, to use the best of technology to, to save these at-risk recordings that in another 20, 30 years could be completely wiped out, maybe sooner. And now, uh, thanks to Bob and his efforts, they're going to 
there, it's, the effort has started to to save these recordings for for research. And you're right. I, generations from now, will be thanking Baylor and, and what, what what Bob is doing for having saved what could have been lost. Well, I'd like to close our interview with what at least one writer has called perhaps the most famous black gospel song, Move Up a Little Higher, written by W. Herbert Brewster. It's a performance that I don't think is well known. It's on the holiday label by Grace Gospel Singers. But before we hear that track and uh, take our leave of each other, uh, Bob Maravich, could you tell us a little bit about why this song is so definitive of this genre, at least in many people's minds? Um, it's it was really the first a million seller, if you will, that when Mahalia Jackson sang it, uh, it was her her coming out song. I mean, she that was what made her popular, um, and it was uh, the first time a gospel disc sold in such quantities that it became part of everyone's repertory. Uh, the Grace Gospel Singers do it a little bit quicker. Um, an interesting thing about them was that their keyboardist is Willie James McFadder who uh, not only was a cousin of Clyde McFadder of the Drifters, uh, uh, but also was um, uh, in that Abyssinian Baptist Church recording and was a member of the Alex Bradford Singers and is still actually playing uh, organ and piano for Chicago churches. He backed them up, as he said, when they were little girls um, on this recording. And it just it shows how uh, composition by Brewster could be so, done so many different ways. Mahalia did it slower. They do it faster. I've heard other versions of this uh, as, a, as a sped-up version. Um, and uh, it's now become a classic in gospel music. And if I'm a group and I'm going to do something that that's well-known to the rest of the community, I ain't going to do it the same way Mahalia does it. I don't want that kind of comparison. So let's uh, rock and roll on it. So we're going to hear the Grace Gospel Singers put their stamp on perhaps the most famous black gospel song, Move Up a Little Higher.
Bob, I'm sorry you're not here. Uh, Gardner and I are having church right here in the studio. It's pretty embarrassing. All right. Well, I wish I did have a video camera there to see that. Yeah, this is quickly turning into one of those YouTube moments. But i got to say, you know, I'm listening <laughs> to that song, and I'm hearing the Grace Gospel Singers do that performance. And there were a couple of moments there where I could hear that the lead singer was actually stretching out maybe in ways that the backup singers were not expecting. But they could turn on a dime. They, they just knew how, okay, great, we'll match you on that. That, that's right. Yes, uh, probably many, many, er, many days of of rehearsal and performance. You kind of know when, what to do, what to go with when uh, when the spirit gets the lead singer. Yeah, and there's nothing like the telepathy of really interesting and great musicians who are watching each other, and they just know you move that way. We're right there with you. One of the, mm-hmm. the amazing things about a lot of this is Chicago based. As this summer had the privilege to go here, First Church of Deliverance, at, at Bob's suggestion massive choir and every one of them was singing as one they could stop and start and there was a number of different artists doing improvisation and the choir directors were doing stuff that was clearly not on the program and it never phased them they just tore it up for three and a half hours it was extraordinary it's always amazing to me when i'll go to a gospel program and say there's no drummer the drummer has not been able to make it and they'll just make an announcement can anyone come up here and play the drums well you would think, my goodness, I don't know who the artists are. I don't know what they're going to sing. I don't know how they're going to do it. And yet somebody will come up there and get on the drums or whatever instrument it is that needs, needs help and do it as if there was never a problem. It's such a great combination of being completely in the moment and years of preparation uh-huh, for being uh-huh. completely in the moment. It's really <laughs> just a, a great, great thing. Well, Robert Darden and Bob Maravich, it's been Terrific to hear you to talk about this music that's so close to your heart and the music that you're both laboring mightily to keep uh, in our ears and in our thoughts and in our hearts as the years move forward. Any closing uh, thoughts as we come to the end of this interview? Well, I just want to thank you for taking the time to really acknowledge this music. It uh, it really is uh, something to hear. I mean, as I said earlier, it's always a surprise when you, you find some recording that you've never heard of before, and then it just blows you away, and you just want to find more just like it. Um, but, uh, you know, without having a, a repository like the, the Black Gospel Music Restoration Project, they're just records in a collection, and, and you're really taking them and making them available for generations to come, and I really am grateful to you for that. Well, a good portion of this collection originally came from Bob Maravich, and Bob and I have one of the great jobs in the world, is that every few days something will arrive, either to come through a uh, something he's bought through eBay or I get a package from somewhere, and they'll call me over at the studio and we'll go over, and it's like Christmas, 300 days a year, to open up and hear and see something that maybe hadn't been heard in 50 years, maybe maybe never was heard, and for the first time, we're going to get to hear something that could have been a pivotal moment in gospel music. And here I am, old fat white guy, 50 years later, hearing the inspiration in the making. What a great job. It's been a real treat to share uh, this music and uh, this interview with you, too. I'd like to thank Alice Campbell for essential research assistance on today's program. Also, I'd like to thank our engineers, Derek here at KWBU-FM, Mary at WFMT in Chicago, And my thanks especially to Robert Darden of Baylor University and Bob Maravich in Chicago for sharing your time and sharing your knowledge and, most of all, sharing your enthusiasm for this wonderful music. Thank you both. And Gardner Campbell, thank you. Thank you, Gardner. To find out how you can help with the Black Gospel Music Restoration Project, visit the project's website at baylor.edu forward slash lib forward slash gospel.